Isn't it great to see baptisms? Boy, I just love to see when people are following God in obedience to what he said once we become a believer, that after that, that we would follow him and believer's baptism. It's great to see people taking that step this morning. Always exciting for me to watch that. And can you believe Thanksgiving is already this week? I mean, it's here. And it's like, wow, that happened fast. That sneak up on anybody else? Or, or do I say that every year? It seems worse this year. I, I just got to tell you, bam, it happened. Well, we're in a series called Rough Crowd, and it's all about the life of Joseph. And, uh, and to understand the life of Joseph, you have to know a little bit about his background and that about his father, Jacob. So if you haven't been here, or maybe you just came to watch somebody get baptized, I want to catch you up. So I'm going to give you the recap to bring you up to date. Does that sound good? All right, here it goes. So Joseph's dad is named Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and that's significant in the Old Testament. And Abraham, uh, he was supposed to bless the whole world through his line. Jacob, his grandson, ends up with four wives and 12 sons. But that did, he didn't really ever intend for that to happen. Actually, what happened is he went to an area and he fell in love with a girl named Rachel. And he wanted to marry her. And her dad, Laban, said, well, you have to work for seven years. If you work for seven years, I'll give her to you in marriage. And so he does it. He does it gladly. And then seven years later, there's a huge marriage feast. And everything's going great. And in the darkness of the tent, when Rachel's supposed to come in, Laban sends his other daughter, an older sister named Leah, into the tent. And Jacob consummates his marriage with somebody, he doesn't realize it. In the morning, he realized, I've consummated my marriage to the wrong sister. And so he says, what have you done to me, Laban? And Laban says, well, we have a custom. The older sister gets married first. And, he, and, and Jacob's like, well, it would have been nice to know that. You could have said something. It's only been seven years that I've been working for her. And Laban says, hey, no worries. Promise me that you'll work another seven years and you can have her sister, Rachel, too. And so Jacob does that. And he ends up with two wives. And these sisters are a little bit competitive. And they start. Have, and the first thing that happens is Leah starts having sons. And Leah has her firstborn named Reuben. And then a guy named Simeon. And then Levi. And then Judah. In the meantime, Rachel hasn't gotten pregnant. She's bummed by this. She sees her sister having all these kids. So then she has one of those really weird conversations that sometimes young couples have. It goes something like this. She comes, Rachel comes to Jacob and says, what do you think about my handmaiden, Bilhah? Isn't she, isn't she pretty? And, and Jacob's like, no, no, she's not pretty. What, you don't think she's pretty? Look at her, I mean, she's beautiful. How can you say that she's not pretty? Oh, okay, yeah, she, she, she's okay, but nothing like you, honey. And then, Rachel says, well, and I don't know if you've had one of those, and, and then nothing like you, and then she goes, well, so you're attracted to Bilhah. No, I, I'm not attracted, but you said she was pretty. No, I didn't say she was pretty. You said she was a pretty. I just agreed with you just to get along. Ever have one of those conversations? Don't even answer that question. It'll just, <laughs> it'll just get you in trouble. And so they're having one of those, and if you've ever had a conversation, I guarantee that this conversation ends differently than any conversation that you've ever had, because here's the next thing that happens. Then Rachel says, well, 
here's what I want you to do. I want you to marry Bilhah and have children by her. And, and, and Jacob goes, no, no way. And she goes, well, why not? Well, I, I can't do that. I, I love you. And she goes, so, but, but you, you need to do that because I can't have kids. And it'll be sort of like when she has kids, it'll be kind of like my kids. And Jacob says, no. And then she goes, so you don't love me. And the next thing you know, Jacob has a third wife. And she gives birth to two more sons. And then Leah sees that happening. And Leah apparently can't have any more children. She's already had four. And so then she talks to Jacob and says, hey, Jacob, what do you think about my handmaiden, Zilpah? And Jacob's like, well, she, she's, she's okay. But don't you think it's the same conversation? <clears throat> Next thing you know, Jacob has a fourth wife and two more sons. About that time, Leah's sort of bummed out on the whole deal, the way this is all playing out. And she actually has then two more sons and a daughter. So Leah's had six sons and two by each handmaiden. And then Rachel, who hasn't been able to have kids this entire time, she finally gets pregnant and has Joseph's 11th son. And then she has another son, Benjamin, and unfortunately she dies in childbirth. And so that's how Jacob ends up with 12 sons. And people say, well, that's polygamy. That's wrong. And they're right when they say that. Well, the Bible's teaching polygamy. No, yeah, the Bible is mentioning polygamy and the Bible's saying, do not do it. Because then we see all the fallout in their lives because of it. The sister wives are competitive. They're competitive against the handmaidens. We see the sons become kind of competitive and jealous. Then one son ends up sleeping with one of his stepmoms. It's just a big old mess. Yeah, God says one man for woman, he, one woman, he's already said that, but they didn't go according to the plan. So, so that's the way that all breaks out. And now there are 12 sons. The 11th son is named Joseph, and he is the son, along with his little brother Benjamin, of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And so he becomes the favored one. Joseph is the one that Jacob loves the most. And he makes Joseph a, a coat that you've probably heard about, a coat of many colors. And Joseph loves wearing that around because it marks him as a favorite. And then not only that, Joseph starts having some dreams and the dreams indicate that his brothers, and one of them indicates even his parents, are going to bow down to him in the future. Remember, he's the 11th oldest brother having dreams. All you guys are going to bow down to me. And his brothers didn't like it. He, they didn't like him because he was favored. They didn't like his coat. They didn't like his dreams. They didn't like him. Then, as the, these are nomadic sheep herders, from camp, Jacob wants to check on how the 10 older brothers are doing managing the sheep herd, and they're like in the next county. And so, but Joseph's not with him because Joseph hangs with dad. So dad sends Joseph to check on his brothers. As he goes and checks on them, the brothers see him coming. He's got the coat and everything. And then they decide, hey, we're going to get rid of this guy once and for all. They're thinking about killing him. Finally, Judah says, no, we should just sell him. And 
And sure enough, they capture him, they throw him into a pit, and some slave traders come by that are heading down to Egypt. So they sell Joseph to this slave caravan, and he's gone, he's taken to Egypt, he's out of their lives once and for all, they think. Now, once Joseph gets down to Egypt, he's auctioned off, a guy named Potiphar buys him, he's actually captain of the guard of Pharaoh, he's government official, and everything Joseph does turns out well. He advances through the slave ranks, but unfortunately, Potiphar's wife has an eye for Joseph. She sees him, notices him, tries to get him to sleep with her, but Joseph, as a God follower, doesn't want to do it, so he says, no thanks, and he repeatedly refuses her. Because of this, she gets angry, and she finally accuses Joseph of raping her, trying attempted rape, and so then Joseph lands in prison. Now, I got to tell you, Joseph's been betrayed by his brothers. He's been sold as a slave. He's been thrown into prison from false accusations. I don't know if you have a bad life, what I'm telling you, Joseph's life was worse. And, and by the way, if you have a great life, Joseph's life was better because here's what happens next. He's in the prison he advances through the ranks there, and even though he's a prisoner, he kind of takes care of other prisoners. And then one day, two officials from Pharaoh's court get thrown into the same prison. Joseph talks to them, gets to know them a little bit. One day, he notices that both these guys are bummed out. They're troubled, and he asks why. And they say, well, we've each had a dream, and these dreams are freaking us out. They don't seem good. We don't know what's going to happen you know, we're waiting to find out our fate. And, Joseph, and, and, and by the way, dreams are big in Egypt, and they have professional dream interpreters, but these guys are in prison. They don't have access. And so they're telling Joseph this, and Joseph says, well, I have a God that knows all about dreams. Tell me your dreams. So the first guy tells his dream, and Joseph, after hearing it, says, hey, that dream means that in three days, you're going to get your old job back, and everything's going to be good. And the guy's like, wow, that's great. The second guy says, oh, wow, that was, you did a good job there. He tells him his dream, and Joseph says, oh, actually, in three days, you're going to be executed. And so, but then he, Joseph says to the first guy, hey, when you get your old job back, the cupbearer to Pharaoh, hey, you have access to Pharaoh all the time. Mention me to Pharaoh because I'm innocent. I'm a foreigner. I don't belong here, and I've been thrown in this jail because of false accusations. Well, three days later, everything happens just like Joe said it was going to happen. But the cupbearer in Pharaoh's court, even though he has access to Pharaoh every day, does not mention Joseph at all. And then two more years go by. Then the Pharaoh has a couple of very troubling dreams. I mean, he's dreaming things like he, he's at the Nile and... and and he sees on the bank that these seven fat and sleek cows come up out of the water and start grazing on the bank. And then after that, these seven really ugly, skinny, messed up cows, they come up on the bank and then they eat the other cows, but they don't get any fatter. They're still just skinny, gaunt, messed up cows. And so he's having dreams like that. And so he's saying, he calls all the wise men in, all the professional dream interpreters, and says, what's this mean? But they can't crack the code. They don't know. They don't know how to answer them. 
And so they're like, we, we have no idea. And by the way, this does not sound like good news, so maybe they're a little reluctant to go there and, and hazard a guess. But then the cupbearer who's watching all this play out in Pharaoh's court, then he says, hey, I know a guy. Hey, back when Pharaoh, you, and they always talk to Pharaoh in the third person. Back when Pharaoh was mad at his servant, you know, hey, this happened, and I met this guy in prison, and we had some dreams, and he interpreted them, and they turned out exactly like he said. So then Pharaoh says, well, go get this guy Joseph out of prison. So they get Joseph, they hurriedly give him a shave, they throw some garments on him, and he goes into Pharaoh's court. And then Pharaoh says, hey, I've had some dreams. I'm really troubled by them. I want them interpreted. I hear you can interpret dreams. Joseph says, well, you know what? I can't really interpret dreams, but God can interpret dreams, and, and sometimes God will tell me what that is. And so that's how that plays out. Joseph tells him, hey, these dreams mean that for the next seven years, you are going to have bumper crop, a, a great crop, a huge harvest. But then for seven years after that, there's going to be a devastating famine in the land. And so he tells Pharaoh what the dreams mean, but then he takes another step, and he tells Pharaoh what to do, which is kind of unusual. He says, so because of that, you need to find some really smart guy and make sure that he collects 20% of the harvest every year in the good years when nobody's even going to miss it, and then that will create a storage of food for the people to eat, to buy, to purchase, to live for the next seven years. Well, Pharaoh is so impressed with that, he makes Joseph prime minister. So Joseph, in one day, goes from slave in a prison to the second most powerful man in the world because Egypt, at this time in history, is the most powerful country in the world. So Joseph works the plan. Things go well. Uh, he collects the 20% every year for seven years. And then the famine hits. But the famine doesn't just hit Egypt. The famine hits the entire world. And so once the Egyptians, they're taking care of them, all these other people from other lands are coming to Egypt because they hear Egypt has grain to sell. And so they start showing up. And this is what happens to bring these back together because Jacob and all of Joseph's 11 brothers are in Canaan. The famine is there. They run out of food. They hear that there's grain for sale in Egypt. And so they go to buy the grain. And this is kind of all the things that work out for Joseph and his brothers to be reunited. And so what I want us to do as we look at the text. So you're caught up. Do you feel caught up? All right. So now we're going to dive into what happens next. And what we're going to find is when Jesus faces, I'm sorry, when Joseph faces his brothers who sold him, you know, we want to know, okay, okay, here's, they're, they're coming, like, it's, it's a crash collision here. What's going to happen? What will Joseph do? How's Joseph going to react? What's Joseph going to do? And why that happens, and then how that plays out. So that's what we're going to look at, okay? So what happens? What does Joseph do when his brothers show up 
to buy grain because these are his 10 older brothers, the guys who sold him into slavery, who were thinking about killing him and sold him, got rid of him. And here, here's what he does. Joseph sets up a test for them. He manipulates the situation. He sets up a test, but actually that's not the real test. There's a test behind the test. So I'm going to explain that, all right? What does Joseph do? Well, Joseph tests his brothers. It starts in Genesis 42, beginning in verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you sitting around staring at one another? Ever have a dad like that? You know, hey, why are you guys sitting around just staring at each other? Hey, get busy. Take care of business. Verse 2, and he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. The ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel, and Israel's another name for Jacob, came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they didn't recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them. So he's remembering these dreams were that they would bow down to him. That's what they're doing right now. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. And so he accuses them. Now, he knows they're not spies. This is an accusation. They start pleading their innocence. And basically, Joseph is going to use this situation to get some information without them knowing who he is about what's going on with the family. Verse 13. But they said, your servants are... So they're on the hot seat because this guy keeps saying, you're spies, you're spies, you're spies. So they just start spilling out information. Here's who we are, here's who we are. And they say, verse 13. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Who are they talking about there? Joseph. He's gone. And so why the fake test here? Why is Joseph putting us, accusing them as spies, getting their answers? Because he knows they're not spies. Joseph is using this fake test to set up a real test that he has. And so this is like the test behind the test. Are you following me? All right. Okay, so verse 14. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this, you'll be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go down from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if you do, but if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely 
you are spies. And so what he does then is he throws them all in jail for three days. So basically Joseph's telling them, one, I'm going to keep you all in prison, and one of you is going to go back home, and you're going to get your youngest brother, because this is Joseph's full brother, the youngest, and you're going to bring him back here. After, and, and he's showing them how serious he is. He's just put them in prison for three days. So after the three days, and maybe Joseph realizes, hey, things are bad in Canaan, unlike Egypt, and maybe it's going to take more than one brother to take all the supplies that need to go back to Canaan to keep the family alive. So he pulls them out, and he kind of changes the plan a little bit. He says, okay, I'm going to have just one of you stay here locked up, and the other nine of you can go home and take the supplies and take the grain, but I'm not selling any more grain to you unless you show up with your youngest brother. So that's the deal. And so, and he keeps Simeon. We don't know exactly why Joseph keeps Simeon or if he picked him or the brothers picked him. But if you kind of read through the whole thing of Genesis, you kind of get the idea that Simeon may be the worst, most rotten brother of the bunch. But who knows, that's speculation. But anyway, he jails Simeon, the rest leave. But here's the thing. Why the test? If this is a fake test, What's the real test? He sets up a test, but the test isn't what they think the test is. It's a test that secretly sets up the real test, which is seeing if they have repented. All right? He already knows they're not spies. That's the fake test. He's setting up something deeper. Now, we do this all the time in our culture. I don't know if you know this, but when you go for a job, uh, interview. A lot of times, there's what you think is the test is the interview and how you answer questions. But a lot of times, they already pretty much know how you're going to answer questions. They'll put other tests that they're going to see how you react to, and it doesn't really re- matter so much how you answer the questions. Uh, I'll just give you an example. Years ago, when we were in our other auditorium, we needed to hire a music person. I, I probably shouldn't even admit this, but we needed to hire a music person. And so we brought a guy in, and so he was going to candidate, but part of his candidating was he was going to run a Sunday morning service for us. So we said, okay, you plan the service, and you tell us what that's going to be. So he writes back. He tells us, here's what I'm going to do. And we say, okay, come and do it. But I'm going to throw a twist that he doesn't know. And my twist is I already know he can do all this stuff on a platform because I've already seen him do that on the platform. I'm actually going to put a twist to see how he is going to be to work with. So then I ask him about another song. He plans six. Well, what about this song? Do you know how to do that and everything? Yeah, I can do that. Do you know how to transition? Yeah, I can do that. But I don't want to do that. I want to do these six. Okay. So he comes. Well, the morning of the rehearsal, as the rehearsal starts, I tell him, I want you to replace, I want you to put this song in and take one of your other six songs out to make that work. Now, do I care about that song? No. Do I know he can do it? Yeah. I know he can do all six. I could know he can do the seventh one. But I'm just asking that to see how he responds to that request the morning of, right before rehearsal. He did not like it. He actually got angry. 
Here's a guy interviewing for a job that gets visibly angry at a request that you make. I'm just saying, hey, is there any way, you know, we talked about this other song. I know you know it. I know you can do it. Let's substitute somewhere in the service. I'd like this song to be put in. You could eliminate whatever song you want. And that made him mad. Well, that's all we needed to know. He didn't need to stay for the service, right? It's like, okay, I just wanted to know. I already knew he could do the music. How would it be to work with him? We do the same thing when we interview candidates for jobs that we don't know. We love to hire from within. That's what we're all about. That's our main thing. But when we hire from without, it's not the interview that we're looking at so closely. It's how they're interacting with people on the way into the interview. It's how they interact with people as you introduce them to others. It's their reaction. Does that make sense? We all know this, right? That's what Joseph's doing here. He's setting up a test, prove me that you're, to me that you're telling me the truth, but he already knows they're telling the truth. He's setting up the test for a bigger test because what he really wants to know, what the real test is, have they changed? Are they different? Are they, treating, are they still treating Benjamin the same way they treated him? And so that's why he wants to see them interact with Benjamin. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah, you guys got it. All right, so here we go. So that's the why, why the test, to see if they've repented. And then how was repentance shown? That's the next thing that we need to look at. And when, what we see as this plays out, as a historical record shows us, is that Judah... Who's got issues? I mean, as I did the recap, there was a little section in there that was all about Judah. It was kind of seedy. But Judah shows repentance by first recognizing his guilt. Actually, they all recognize their guilt. So first thing to show repentance, as we see in what happened, is they admit their guilt about Joseph. They're innocent of being spies. They're guilty of something else. So they're, ha they're, they're haunted by guilt. Because they're in Egypt and they remember what they did to Joseph, which was like 20 years ago. But it still haunts them. Verse 42, 21. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we wouldn't listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. That's why bad things are happening to us, they're thinking. Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy. And you wouldn't listen? Now, now comes the reckoning for his blood. They didn't know, however, that Joseph understood for there was an interpreter between them. You see what's happening? They're having a sidebar conversation. This is all our fault. This bad stuff. He's accusing us. This is God getting us back because we sold Joseph. They're having this sidebar. But Joseph can hear every word. But they don't know Joseph could hear because they're using an interpreter between Egyptian and Hebrew. Does that make sense? So Joseph's on to him. Verse 24. And then Joseph, he turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they get out of there minus Simeon. 
They're kind of bummed about that, depending on how much they cared for Simeon. But, uh, you know, nine of us heading back. They get to the first campsite, and one of the brothers unloads a bag of grain so they can give to their mules. And when he opens it, there's the money that he paid for the grain in the mouth of his sack. And so it's like, what? It's like he's stolen this money. But he didn't. He's innocent. So they don't know what's going on there. So anyway, they go on home. They get back to Canaan. They report back to their father, Jacob. And they tell him everything that happened. They still don't know who Joseph is, you know. So they're just saying, hey, it was kind of rough down there. We got the grain. But if you'll notice, there's a brother missing. If you care at all, you know, his name is Simeon. And we had to leave him. And in order to spring him out of jail, we got to go back with Benjamin. And we already know you don't want to do that. Then after they update Jacob on what's going on, they start unloading all their bags and opening all their sacks and realize all of the brothers have their money returned to them in the mouth of each of their sacks of grain, which kind of freaks them out. They don't really know what's going on. They don't get it. But, they, but the brothers secretly, because Jacob doesn't know any of this, the brothers are thinking, wow, this, 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 what has God done to us? What's God doing to us? It's like God is setting us up to pay the price because we're so guilty of what we've done 20 years ago. So now job one is to take Benjamin down there so we can spring Simeon out of jail. So that's the plan, but verse 36, their father Jacob said to them, you've bereaved me from my children. Joseph is no more. By the way, you've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. As far as Jacob knows, they're innocent of Joseph. It's his words are truer than he even knows. You've, you've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you take Benjamin, my new favorite. All these things are against me. And so he says, no, I'm not going to let you take Benjamin to spring Simeon out of jail because I don't know what's going to happen to Benjamin. He's my favorite now. Not letting it go. By the way, this whole favorite thing is causing Jacob a lot of problems because parents should not have favorites. Okay, right. So we all get that. And so they don't go. And then Reuben, the oldest son, he comes to Jacob. He says, look, Dad, here's the deal. I'm going to let me take Benjamin and I'll go down and get Simeon and, and we'll get some more grain. And if I don't come back with Benjamin... You can kill my two sons. You know, Jacob's like, what? Yeah, so I lose another son, and then you want me to kill two grandsons? That makes no sense. By the way, Jacob does not trust Reuben at all, because what I didn't tell you in the recap was Reuben, the oldest son, had actually slept with one of his stepmoms, you know, which is Jacob's wife, you know, he, which was actually Leah's handmaiden, Bilhah. But anyway, you know, that was not a good thing. So Jacob, he didn't trust Reuben as far as he could throw Reuben. So he's like, no way, not going to happen. So then they just start living their life. They start eating the grain. They eat away, everything good. You know, just living their lives while Simeon is rotting in jail in Egypt. But something's bothering them because they know, hey, this money in the sack thing, Simeon gone, this, it, it, this is God getting us back. 
Then they admit their guilt. Remember, Joseph wants to see repentance. And the next thing that happens is Judah, who's more trustworthy than Reuben, he steps up and takes leadership. He takes responsibility. Time passes. They eat all the grain up. And now there's, it's still famine. This is seven years. They probably thought, hey, maybe this next year things will be better. Maybe we can hold out. They can't hold out. And so it's time. They, they need food. And they're all starting to starve again. So Judah goes in to Jacob and he kind of lobbies that he'll take Benjamin. Now, side note on Judah. Judah, after Joseph was taken away, a lot of stuff happened in Judah's life. We talked about it a few weeks ago. He kind of strays from God's people, gets involved with the wrong crowd, a rough crowd. He ends up marrying a woman. He has three sons. His oldest one, it's time for him to get married. He finds a, a girl for him named Tamar. They get married, but Onan does something, or not Onan, his first son does something that's so grievous to God that God just kills him. And, and Judah never really knew what that was. So then there was a custom that if a son died without heirs, that then the second son, his younger brother, would then marry his widow to provide an heir. And at least that first child that they would have, especially the first son, would be actually considered the heir of the dead brother. Does that make sense? Called lever out marriage. So that happens. So Judah gives Onan to Tamar. You know, so Tamar and the second brother, Onan, get married. But Onan doesn't want his older brother, his older brother's inheritance to go to this first child that they're going to have. So Onan enjoys the pleasure of the marriage, but he makes sure that Tamar cannot get pregnant. He does that by interrupting their physical time together. Enough said on that. So then, God doesn't like that, what Onan is doing, so God kills Onan. Well, then Judah's like, whoa, two guys down. He doesn't know why, but both of his sons who have been married to Tamar have died unexpectedly. Well, then it comes time for the youngest son, Shelah, and, and he says, no, he's too young. And so rather, remember, Tamar's part of his household, but rather than care for his twice-widowed daughter-in-law, he sort of abuses his responsibility, rejects his responsibility, tells her, you go back and live in your father's house, and when my youngest son's old enough, don't call us, we'll call you, kind of a deal. So that all happens. In the meantime, Judah's wife dies. Well, then Judah is, realizes, you know, he's, he's kind of done with Tamar. Tamar understands that, hey, okay, the third son, Shayla, he's old enough, but I'm not been given Shayla for marriage. So here, the responsibility of Judah was to make sure that I would have a line to pass down, and you're not letting that happen. So anyway, she dresses up as a prostitute. She hides where he, she knows that Judah's going to be. Judah hires her. Uh, they agree on a price, but he doesn't have his wallet. They have the transaction. After it's over, he sends a friend to make payment. She's gone. They don't know where she is. So Judah's... He's got a messed up life. 
Then he finds out that she's pregnant and he basically sentences her to execution. But then she says, oh, the one who made me pregnant is the guy who left me with his stuff as a pledge until he could pay me his ring, his signet, and his staff. And it's Judah's stuff. But then Judah has this huge change in his life. He says, she is right. She is more righteous than I am. And so he takes care of her for the rest of her life. He never has a physical relationship with her again. She ends up having two sons anyway. I'm drifting. But anyway, that's what's going on. So Judah speaks to Joseph. I'm sorry, Judah speaks to his dad, Jacob. Here's what he says. Judah spoke to him saying, hey, the man, talking about Joseph, solemnly warned us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel, or Jacob said, why do you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you even had another brother? But they said, the man questioned us about our relatives saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. How could we possibly know that he'd say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to his father, Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be a surety or a guarantee for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we have not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. So Judah talks Jacob into relenting and sending Ben with them. So they set up, they set off for, for Egypt again. And there's 10 of them because now Ben's with them, but Simeon's still in jail. And so they get there, but they're afraid because they've had this money returned and they don't know how that's gonna play out because Egypt apparently never got the money for the grain from their first visit, so they don't know. So then when they get there, Joseph sees that they have Benjamin with them another guy, another brother. So he tells his assistant, hey, invite him to a feast at my house, at my royal house. And so they do that, but the brothers are like, oh, he wants us to go to his house. This is bad news. There's probably a dungeon there. So they have a sidebar with the assistant and they say, hey, by the way, on that last visit, you know, we left with a bunch of grain, but our money had been returned to us in our sacks. We don't know how it got there. And the assistant says, hey, don't worry about it. I had your money. That's a God thing. And we're kind of interesting. Well, how do he know about God? Apparently, Joseph's taught him something about God. So Simeon's released, and Joseph comes in, and the first thing he asks is, is your father still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. Is this your youngest brother you've been talking about? Yeah, this is the youngest brother. And at that point, he's overcome with tears, and he leaves the room, and he comes back in. But then here's the point. He, they admitted guilt with responsibility, but repentance needs one more thing. And that is that we demonstrate change in our life. And that's what Judah does. And this is what Joseph wants to know. Have you changed? They don't know they're being tested for this. But he wants to know, have you changed? And so they're thinking, you know, we, the readers, know who Joseph is. We're thinking maybe he wants revenge. He, he doesn't want revenge. He wants repentance. Chapter 43, 33. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. They're seated according to their age, and they're all looking around going, well, how'd this guy know that? 
He took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And so they feasted and drank freely with him. You see, Joseph's watching to see as he favors Benjamin how they'll react to that. And the feast ends and the brothers are ready to leave, but Joseph isn't finished. Chapter 44. Then he commanded his house steward saying, fill them in sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Again, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. So he did as Joseph had told him, and as soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. And they had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, follow up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? So here they are, they got Simeon back, and now it's all 11 of them, and they're heading out with the grain, and they're finally thinking, okay, we're out of here, we got food, we can last a while, we're done with Egypt, maybe we'll never have to come back here. But then a posse overtakes them and accuses them of stealing Joseph's cup. And they say, we're innocent, we didn't do that. And they say, well, we're going to have to search you. They go, bring it, search us. And by the way, if you find the cup with any money, you can kill that brother and the rest of us will be slaves because that did not happen. That's what they say. And this is the test. I mean, verse 12 continues. So he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes And when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. And when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell to the ground before him. And Joseph's like, hey, what'd you steal from me? And they say, we didn't. And here's what Judah says. Rather than proclaim their innocence, he says, God has uncovered our guilt. But they're not guilty of stealing the cup. But Judah says, God has uncovered our guilt. He says, we're your slaves But Joseph says, well, I'll just keep the youngest as a slave. Hey, the rest of you can go. And here is the real test. How do they react to that? Will they leave Benjamin? And it would be easy to do, right? Benjamin's the favorite. He gets all the special treatment. And now their dad obviously loves Benjamin more. What's going on there? This would be the time to leave him. Hey, it was out of our control. Hey, Benjamin, turns out he's a thief, and he stole this stuff. What, we, we couldn't do anything about it. They can, but they don't, and this is the test. Then Judah approached him. He's talking to Joseph. He says, oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. He starts telling the story. Remember when you asked us about our family, and we said there's another one, and he didn't ever leave his dad? He didn't want us to bring him back, but we did. Verse 33, now therefore, please let your servant remain. Judah saying, let me remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brother. It's weird. They call Benjamin a lad. He's actually a young man. With, he actually has kids. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad isn't with me for fear that I will see the evil that would overtake my father? And then we see in this snapshot, the tremendous change that has happened in Judah's life. He was guilty. It was his idea to sell Joseph as a slave. He's the one that put Tamar out of his house. But after that Tamar incident, 
when he said, no, I'm, I'm more guilty than she is, and then he did the right thing? It seems like his life has changed. And these brothers have changed too. They don't react to Joseph that way. And here, Judah's saying, I'll stay as a substitute for Benjamin. I'll be your slave for the rest of my life. Just let Benjamin go. And that's when Joseph sees that they have actually passed the test because they're not just guilty, they're not just sorry, they take responsibility, Judah does, and he takes action. He says, I'll stay if you'll let him go. He'll be his substitute. That's the real test. And here's the thing. That's the test for us. You know what everybody thinks about the Bible? They think, hey, well, my relationship with God, it's all, the test is how well do I do what God tells me to do? How good am I? We think that's the test because God's told us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And so we think the test is doing what God says. That's not the test. The test is do we recognize that we're guilty of not doing everything that God has told us to do? That's the test. Do we recognize that we're guilty and that we're so guilty there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves unguilty that we need outside help? And that's what God gives us through Jesus. God sent his son, sinless, ultimately to die to pay for our sins. But in order for us to get that forgiveness and our sins to be taken care of and taken away from us, and then what will show up in our lives when we actually do that is that we will turn to God with a desire to follow him and God will change our life, and that to be a believer. Forgiveness and salvation, it's a gift. It's a gift from God. We cannot earn it. We can't earn it by getting baptized. It's what we should do once we become a believer. But salvation's a gift that we can only receive through faith. And that only happens when we truly repent. And so the question is, have you done that? Because that's the most important decision in your life. So I'm long here, and I don't want to draw this out. I got a little wordy in my story. Sorry about that. But I want to give you an opportunity. If you're new here, or maybe you've understood this in a more fuller way, I want to give you an opportunity to put your trust, your faith in Christ alone. That means... You're trusting that Jesus' death on the cross is the only thing, the only way that someone besides you could pay for your sins and that we're all guilty. And so I'd like everyone to bow, bow your heads and i just lead you in a prayer. If you're ready to put your trust in Christ, you can express it this way to God. God, I recognize Lord, that I'm guilty. There's no excuses. I'm, I'm just guilty. I violated your laws. I don't always do right. And God, because of that, I understand that I should be punished. 
But Father, I also understand that you love me, you love all of us, and you sent your son to take our punishment on him so that through faith we could be forgiven. So right now I'm putting my trust in Jesus and Jesus alone with a desire to follow you with my life. That's repentance. God, save me. Thank you for Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. If you heads bowed, if you prayed that prayer, we'd kind of like to know. I, again, don't want to prolong this, but if you just raise your hand and say, hey, Kevin, I prayed that prayer, I won't embarrass you. I would just like to know. We do have some materials that if you wanted to come into room one, you could grab that. But if you prayed that prayer, if you just raise your hand and say, hey, Kevin, I, I prayed that prayer along with you. Just put it up and then put it right back down. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Let's stand together for prayer. Hey, this is last Sunday for our boxes, and so they're going to be sent out. And so we just want to pray over them before we dismiss. And let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to help children in third world countries who have nothing and that we can prepare these boxes, put in gifts, Christmas present that they've never received before, but also with it in their own language, the story, your story, and how Jesus came to die for them and that Jesus loves them. And Father, we pray that every child that receives one of these boxes would seriously consider a relationship with you and that you would cause a change to happen in their hearts like you've done for most of us. God, thank you for the opportunity. Bless these boxes as they go out to impact kids. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed. Have a great day.